Hi everybody, thank you very much for joining us and welcome back to Lighting the Pipes. It's been a little Hello. while, hey, it's been a little while, Josh, since yourself and myself have been here to, to talk uh, mystery uh, and Philip Marlowe and Raymond Chandler and all that great stuff. And I'm going to ask a question now, Josh, and you know, you and our listeners already have a realistic answer for it, but in the spirit of pleasantries, knowing how our world is, how are you doing, sir? It goes. I'm. I'm here. I'm. I'm. I got my coffee. I'm ready to talk about Raymond Chandler <laughs> and his hero Philip Marlowe. Uh, I'm here to talk about the High Window. I'm here to enjoy some literary talk, and I've I've looked forward to, to doing this episode for a few weeks. And I know that you know we do these like in periods almost mm -hmm. periodically, simply because we got to be able to have time in our lives to read this book, right? And it's kind of funny I say that, you know, given the fact that you know most of the time we're cooped up in our houses, but Absolutely. And uh, it has been a fun sort of lead up to this because unlike previous episodes of Light in the Pipes, particularly when we did the Sherlock Holmes canon there a couple of years back, um, now that we've, we've moved into Chandler, we seem to be spending less and less time talking about these big reads in the intervals in between, don't we? We're kind of we're coming into these episodes, at least I feel, uh, a little bit blind as to each other's feelings. Yeah, I suppose so. We do like status updates on where you are in the book, and then from that point on, we can, we can we we can guesstimate, you know, when we're going to have our next episode mm -hmm. and, yeah. and have our notes ready for that episode and whatnot. So really, it's just kind of a fly fly by the seat of your pants sort of thing, you know, like. Uh, we, we get a case dropped across our desk just like Marlo does in, 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 her, in her own way. Mm, I guess that's true. Yeah, it is true. And uh, with, as you said, with so many people uh, kind of in their own homes now, and it looks as though the ugliness of the pandemic is going to continue for another little while. So there's every reason to sink into a few good stories and uh, plan a few more episodes. And indeed, we do have the entire Chandler Marlo series. We're um, three books in now. We've got four to go. Is that right? Four to go? I believe so. Three to go. I'm not 100% sure yeah. because I see different listings of his books and, and, and mm -hmm. it's like some, I guess some of his books might have been post posthumous. I don't know the full mm -hmm. details on that yet, but yeah yeah i know that um i know that the high window and you may even get into this yourself when uh, we share a little bit about the story but the high window i believe was the first of the marlowe stories that wasn't kind of cut up from previous short stories this was kind of his first attempt at at writing one out you know that's right yeah that's right cool. that, that that that's right absolutely it wasn't uh well, I, I I have a term I use for it, anyways. But we'll get to that once mm -hmm. we describe, once we get into yeah. the uh, the the bio of Raymond Chandler writing uh, the High Window. Excellent. Uh, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, uh, I would really like to thank our listeners for sticking with us. It's been a while since we did Farewell, My Lovely, um, and it's 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 kind of exciting because this weekend's a bit of a double bill for Lighting the Pipes. Not only not only are we going to talk about this book here this morning, but we're also going to release an episode uh, on Enola Holmes, the Netflix film that uh, we've watched, and we're mm. bringing along our co-host from our other podcast, uh, Bond by Numbers, Jeff Chapman, and he's going to be with us later on. Uh, to talk about that so that should be fun too so those of you who've been waiting for a while you're going to get a, a, a back-to-back light in the pipes episode this weekend hopefully yeah, yeah a, a wee little film reviews so to speak yeah very much very much in keeping with the the pipes 
acronym and the uh, the Sherlock Holmes origin of, of what we're doing here. And uh, I'd really like to take this opportunity, Josh, I know you would as well, to, um, apart from thanking our listeners for sticking with us and welcoming them on board with this show, also want to uh, to give a shout out to a writer and a friend of the podcast, J.B. Stevens, who's yes. one, of our, one of our listeners from the American South. Now, J.B. Stevens very generously sent us a review copy of a recently published anthology of stories entitled Tales of Southern Humor and Southern crime way back in June. Now, it did take a while for UPS and the border authorities to get it from A to B, but and then, and then I guess it took even longer or a little bit longer than for us to get around to reading and scheduling in as part of the show. I completely like forgot that uh, <laughs> that uh, of course I was going to get the copy, but when I got, well, I guess it's in the time of my life when it arrived at my at my door, I was just kind of sort of like who is this from and there was a bit of a moment of panic for a second, <laughs> uh, but 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 then I kind of realized, and when I saw the name on the package, which was kind of not very well written on there uh, by the authorities who put it there, I, mm-hmm. I suppose. Uh, so I was just a bit uh, <laughs> uh, freaked out briefly for a moment. So it created some suspense, and I I guess it's something that a great detective story, uh, <laughs> noir or modern Southern noir should, I suppose. Yeah. So yeah. so so thank you, JB. It added an additional little bit of. Uh, uh, fl- flavor to my reading experience. Uh, Josh, just ignoring its contents for a second, it is a quite a smart looking book too, isn't it? It is. I like the packaging and I was just like flipping through some of the stories besides JB just to mm-hmm. get a flavor. Just reading, just looking at, at, at uh, you know, uh, different stories in there. Mm-hmm. And, and like first the humor, which is a genre of literature that I'm not really familiar with beyond like joke books, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe some satires, you know, like Animal Farm or mm-hmm. like Aristophanes, the Lysistrata. Like, I guess that's what I mean by humor in literature. And I haven't read any Mark Twain really to kind of get my, my, my fill of it, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So I might uh, delve into the humor part sometime soon as well. But I did like the array of mystery writers you had lined up there. And the idea of like Southern Gothic mystery it just seems really uh, intriguing to me especially you know considering I loved uh, True Detective and particularly mm-hmm. the first season and that really kind of got me into the southern gothic kind of feel got me looking at some of like the uh, older southern mystery and horror writers from like the late 80s so I just kind of enjoyed that I've, that that whole aspect is very intriguing to me so um, but I also like the idea too of which what Stevens presents in his story of showing you know like the the modern south i suppose from that angle as well mm-hmm. in a hard boiled kind of way that he was that he was presenting showing this veteran uh an aging veteran and from like from from uh from the from the uh who served in the wars and I, I think it was in kosovo in the 90s if i'm not mistaken yeah well that that there's a reference to kosovo in the story but i thought yeah he was, yeah that's right yeah yeah, so I, I figure by the time because he's he's writing this only like from a couple of years ago, so he would have been like a, a, an aging veteran who's now serving in the police department, mm-hmm. and just kind of showing you know like how is he up for this job you know the way that he is you know and yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I also like kind of like the the subversions of certain things that you would expect you know like things that you don't expect and things to be turned on its head. So uh, beyond you know you know showing a simple kind of like a uh, very typical kind of police foot chase and car chase slash foot chase and showdown and and then kind of like the PTSD from those moments that that occur as well and the whole trope too of being knocked out you know and uh yeah, yeah I like very that. End, yeah. very Chandlerian in in, mm-hmm. in 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 that kind of sense you know like being 
all dabbed up again afterwards, you know, after it's all said and done and getting yeah. a chance to breathe, I suppose, I guess you could say. I really like that, JB, and I hope to hear more from Smitty in the future. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think maybe just a, a, another moment or two on the story that yes. uh, that Stevens uh, has in that anthology. There are 22 stories in total, right? 13 crime and nine humor. And um, I, I guess, you know, I'm not going to spoil the whole story for those who want to go out and, and, and pick up a copy of that. But it was super nice of him to send us one. And we're more than happy to talk a little bit more about uh, about JB's story here. I mean, I found it like you did, Josh. I found it quite short and lively yarn um, mm-hmm. following this older cop, this veteran Smitty, who's kind of staking out a fugitive in Savannah. Right. He's Savannah, Georgia. Yes. Savannah, the action, Georgia. The action starts in like the marshland of uh, I mean, he describes it in the story as the jungle. Now, I can't tell if that's a colloquialism yeah. or if or if that's that's actually, you know, um, if it's tropical enough in its uh, biosphere. Savannah, Georgia, yeah. In the Mulberry Grove Plantation. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So there's a kind of like, he's throwing imagery there from like, you know, from very, very strong, like Southern, almost Confederate Mm -hmm. imagery in there too, with the old plantations, the old Mm -hmm. history of America, what it used to be, you know, in that context. Mm -hmm. Um, And and playing on the reconstruction a little bit, I would say there's some notes in there for sure, some nods in there for sure. Um, yeah. I like I like I like the look of um, of Smitty too, Josh. You know, we we get a really good impression of him as he's sitting there on the cold bricks during this, this stakeout with the fugitive, and uh, he's sitting in his Walmart slacks. He's just waiting for a chance to light that uh, cigarette. What is it, Lucky Stripe, or is it Lucky yeah, Stripe? Lucky Stripe, yeah. For those listeners out there who ever seen the show, like uh, Mad Men, uh, you know what I'm talking about, because the first episode of Mad Men is all about Don Draper trying to sell Lucky Strike cigarettes to a new market. Uh, that has basically been told by Reader's Digest that smoking is evil or, or no, deadly to you. And so the whole episode, the, the pilot episode of Mad Men is, Don, is John Hamm's character trying to sell cigarettes to people. And Lucky Strike uh, is, of course, the cigarette of, uh, of note in that episode. I guess it's my Canadian ignorance, but I always thought that Lucky Strike might have been a fictional name. But I looked it up. No, like it is a brand known in the United States, not so in Canada, you know, like the typical like the more popular brands like Players or mm-hmm. or, you know, Virginia Slim yeah, Export or- A. Marlboro, that mm-hmm. sort of stuff, right? Like it's kind of like it's its own little niche kind of market, I guess, in the United States. Uh, well, Smitty's a bit rudderless, uh, following a breakup with his ex-partner Eric, who still cares for him, not in that sort of, uh, not in like a nursing home way, but cares for him in an emotional way. But exactly, uh, right. he, he's moved on, moved on in life with a pharmacist whose name is Phil. We only hear about him twice, but both times quite funny. <laughs> I think when Phil the pharmacist <laughs> pops up. Yeah. Um, clearly, I, I mean, this is how I read it. Smitty's job's offering him some purpose at this stage in his life, but uh, he's, he's kind of getting tired with, with the bureaucracy of it all. Um, and I think yeah. that the, the narrator he's reflects... Young, he's like his young his younger captain or... or, or... <laughs> yeah. yeah, he calls him an asshole who signs off his texts with like de- de- Deputy Chief Flynn or Sergeant Deputy or something like that. But, you yeah. know, I, I found that really funny because it reminded me of a couple of people I work with in the parallel public sector of education, you know, like people hiding behind titles who and, and you can imagine them sitting doing leadership courses, right, instead of actually going out and getting the experience to help you become a leader. And yeah, so Sm- Smitty kind of looks down a bit at this guy and he doesn't, you know, there's, there's no reciprocal respect uh, given there. But yeah, but it's interesting, uh, though, it doesn't suggest any corruption per no, se from no, this no. guy, which is kind of like, the, I guess it's kind of like anti-Chandlerian in that way where like Marlowe mm. would talk about a litany will give uh, about you know right. how these yeah. guys are sort of yeah. you know just corrupted within the system or they just play with the system the way that it is mm-hmm. and this and maybe in a way Smitty is kind of doing a Marlowe here where he's simply just you know giving his feelings about 
about how the system is currently right now, where you got like these young people who send texts and stuff like that. <laughs> but in terms of general plot, there wasn't a lot going on. As I said, it's a foot chase essentially. Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, and it is a short story perp, too. Something that you would see like in your everyday police procedural, right? Uh, but then all of a sudden, you know, like you could, there's all these different uh, twists, but they're not so much as twists as they're revelations that kind of show a different light on on, on, on a, a typical situation like mm-hmm. this. And, you know, we got to look at Chandler in his own way in comparison. He was basically taking pulp and bringing an artistic level to it that no one did before, mm-hmm. you know? That's and right. so I kind of see Stevens is kind of trying to take this old genre of Southern crime and he's trying to put a new light on it as well, showing, you know, in a more progressive American sort of way. So mm-hmm. if I got all your thematics wrong, JB, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought... That's your take on it. That's my take on it. Yeah, absolutely. The the biggest trick to – I always found short stories the hardest thing to write personally uh, because I I love like scope. I love having – you know Expansion, yeah. Expansion and and these vistas in my head that I want to see. And a a short story really, you got to pull everything in and and, and tighten it and you got to find a way to like get that stuff, that deep stuff in there while while looking relatively, you know, sort of – I guess flimsy on an uh, on, a, on, a, on a, an aesthetic level. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, how many times have we said here on the show that that the the Conan Doyle stories, which perhaps are more lasting, are the ones that are more suggestive? And suggestivity, um, that sort of you know sub structure of the iceberg. I mean, to to pare it down. Yeah. Uh, I mean that that sort of connotative level is so much more important I think in short fiction because you're dealing with a, a you know a, a more limited scope and you want your characters to breathe and to live in ways that perhaps are more subtle um, than they would be in an epic of expanded prose right now I mean that that's a generalization I'm quite aware of that but I do I do agree with what you're saying that there's a there's a real nice subtlety to a lot of the strokes in this story. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, so anyway, thank you, JB, for, for sending that on. I mean, I'm, I'm tempted to keep going on and talking about the story, but for those listening who would like to check out Tales of Southern Humor and Southern Crime, then uh, I don't want to spoil it. But I would encourage you to uh, find JB's stuff on mm-hmm. Twitter. His handle is at Stevens. He's on Instagram at Stevens. But I would recommend particularly... Uh, check out his website for a full picture of his work, published and upcoming work involving other short stories, but poetry yes. and info on a couple of novels as well, linked novels. Now that site is jb-stevens.com. Uh, so yeah, thanks JB for that, your generosity yeah, I, and patience absolutely. in sending us that. I, uh, I hope to hear more of Smitty in the future. I guess maybe, I don't know if he's going to have a Holmesian kind of career of various different adventures. I'm not sure. But um, if you plan to include him again, I would be excited about that. Mm-hmm. Or I'm sure, you know, just how you, you know, how you created that character in that small in that small framework. I'm sure you can kind of come up with just as fascinating uh, yeah. different characters from there as well. And one more thing I want to point out about the story as well is is that um, we, we talked about, you know, like the ideas and themes that he puts in there. We talked about subversions of, of tropes that, you know, that we've seen before and how he plays with them. I also want to point out that the imagery that he paints in there is actually very good at expressing almost like a, a form of realism, almost like in how he describes uh, what being a police officer is like. You get that kind of like in the head kind of feel stream of consciousness in a way that I, that I like and how he describes things like little even though it's a gory detail but how he talked about you know like when he shot at the perp and mm-hmm. there was mm-hmm. a red mist where his head was like they how they just ended the situation with the perp so like so succinctly you know mm-hmm. like it just mm-hmm. kind of goes like it's felt it, it kind of felt very realistic to me 
So mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed that part of it as well. So mm-hmm. again, mm-hmm. kudos. You know, Josh, maybe we should take a break after our Marlowe series to explore some more contemporary crime writers and, you know, reach out to the likes of JB and, and others. I just feel like in pursuing the classics of genre fiction, and let's face it, we've really only got started here with the scope of our show. We, we do sometimes get lost in the past and we forget what's right in front of us, you know? Yeah, there is definitely a lot of modern mystery writers I'm interested in. There is actually one um, I want to I wanted to look into. Lindsay Davis, uh, this author, he created a series about uh, a Roman detective named Marcus Didius Falco, hmm. and it's set during like the it's set during like Imperial Rome, and he's essentially like a, a detective in that time period. So even though like it's 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 it's, it's probably written with a very modern style to it, right? Yeah, but I would think so. Time, yeah. It's, but it, but at the same time, like it's also said in the past, I guess. But that's something that sounds intriguing as well. And both um, both me and you have a good knowledge of the Roman Empire, mm-hmm. yeah. so I, I think it could be something kind of different to take a look at. It could be cool, yeah. I wonder if the late great Colleen McCulloch has any crossover with that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Everyone knows McCulloch for the Thornbirds, but few have read her Masters of Rome series, which is mm-hmm. quite uh, phenomenal. Quite, yeah, quite intense. Yeah, and uh, it gives you the real picture of the fall of the Roman Republic, unlike anything else. And the um, glorified image of Julius Caesar himself. Let's let's not ignore that blatant. Yeah, Caesar is glorified. That's right. In that he's like a pop, a very popular figure. He's not the more morally ambiguous kind of figure that you would see like in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, or even the portrayal of like done by Kieran Hines on HBO's Rome. Uh, is a much more almost like a heroic kind of like uh, savior figure in in her story. Yeah. But uh, to be fair though, uh, just continuing the Roman history. Uh, thread here is that uh, her first three novels focus mostly on uh, Marius and Sulla and like the the period that kind of inspired Caesar to do what he did in the first place. That's so right. and, and that, that that's where the real meat of the of her series is 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 uh, the Marius Sulla years and the whole all the factionalism of that period as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so maybe that's a uh, food for thought for the future. Food for food thought for, thought for the, the future. future. Yeah. yeah. But again, uh, that character's name by Lindsay Davis is Marcus Didius uh, Falco. And no relation to the German pop star, Rock right. Me Amadeus. Oh, right, right. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> moving swiftly on. I don't, I don't know what to say about that. No, absolutely. Anyway, listen, thank you, JB. It was Thanks for sending us up that uh, that collection. Best of luck. And uh, for sure, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe soon, sometime soon, we'll reach out to you and get you on the show. And you can talk a little bit more about your work um, when we uh, change focus and look at some more contemporary stuff. But yeah, JB Stevens, check out his stuff, jbstevens.com. All right. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for us to get into our feature focus, which, of course, is the third Philip Marlowe adventure by Raymond Chandler. I speak, of course, about the high window. So get yourself up high. Look out below. Here we come. So at the beginning of 1940, uh, Ray and Sissy moved again. Uh, this time an apartment on San Vicente Boulevard in Santa Monica. Uh, but before they could find any stability enough for him to settle down and start his next project, in February of 41, they moved out to the Pacific Palisades as Santa Monica was too loud, according to uh, Tom Williams, the author of A Mysterious Something in the Light, The Life of Raymond Chandler, a great biography uh, that Williams p- published a few years ago. 
it was uh, this time they were in a house, uh, and though it's and though it was small, it did boast a garden, and which was an ideal environment for reigniting the writing spark in in uh, Chandler. What would become the High Window? It started out as a parody, a burlesque novel that bore the working title of the Brasher Doubloon, which mm-hmm. coincidentally is also the name of the 1947 film adaptation of The High Window. Mm. All right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, starring George Montgomery. Uh, it seems like it was definitely a low-end sort of... Uh, it wasn't a big studio production, but mm-hmm. they they had the rights. And I guess uh, no one was similar, seemingly at that time. If you look at it, uh, you know, you have Warner Brothers doing The Big Sleep. Uh, yeah. A few years before, they did uh, Murder, My Sweet, which was an adaptation of Farewell, My Lovely. It seems like there, when there was no one really interested in the time of making Marlowe a cinematic universe. It was this was before the 1950s and when the when like you know the Cahiers de Cinema pioneers like Andre Bazin and all those people and Truffaut and and whatnot they weren't really interested in Noir. Um, I guess or well they were the people that made Noir kind of. A, a cinematic language, I suppose yeah, you could say. Yeah. That's a good way. Because, yeah, I think that's because these were these were just at the time gangster films made during the Second World War. That's basically what these movies were. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until like afterwards, when people look back on film theory, when, when film became uh, an appreciated subject, even or an accepted subject. You know, it was basically a, a subsection of art history, which didn't gain prominence until the 1970s. So based on the description of the synopsis provided by Tom Williams in his Chandler biography, it would have been over the top in its pulpiness, but whatever his original intentions with the story, its parodic elements didn't survive the first draft, and the two ciphers he was using for characters in the tale soon metamorphosed into a single protagonist, our man Philip Marlowe, was back on the case again. Mm-hmm. But the initial plot outline was, re- was preserved, minus its satiric elements. In this fashion, the high window boasted an original storyline, not... Frankenstein together from previous Black Mass tales as the Big Sleep and Farewell My Lovely exhibit. By September 1941, Chandler was deep into the manuscript. He sent a missive to Knopf exclaiming, I'm afraid the book isn't going to be any good to you. No action, no likable characters, no nothing. The detective does nothing. Now, Williams provides an analysis of the, of, uh, the high window, but we'll stick you know, with yours as you have one prepared for this time. And, uh, <laughs> That should be our central focus uh, in, that, in that respect. Well, we got Williams you. here to give us the broad strokes of uh, Mr. Chandler's life and, uh, yeah. and the production of his work in that period. In this particular story, Pasadena is introduced to the Marlowe universe uh, and a new breed of socialites that we have that than what we have seen previously, the nouveau riche. Mm-hmm. Uh, the novel also features Bunker Hill and is described eloquently and vividly by Chandler. Chandler's writing took him through winter of 41, including the Day of Infamy, December 7th, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. As America joined the war against the Axis powers, Ray continued with his writing. The Chandlers moved again during this time, and Williams points out an instance where Ray and Sissy, and most of Los Angeles, were shook by the possible destruction of enemy fighters by anti-aircraft guns above Los Angeles. Needless to say, the Chandlers were at a new summer resort, Idlewild, in the summer of 42. At this point, he had completed the high window and was settling the final artwork details with Knopf. It was released in October 1942, and once again, Ray found himself disappointed at the relatively poor sales, or at least they were poor for Knopf's expectations. Yeah, they really were, weren't they? 4,000 of 6,000 copies were sold. And Now, it was considered a dud in the United States, but it made a stronger impact overseas in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. But nothing remarkable, and Ray was not overly disappointed about that. 
According to Williams in the biography, he was frustrated on other matters. The thing that rather gets me down is that when I write something that is tough and fast and full of mayhem and murder, I get panned for being tough and fast and full of mayhem and murder. And then when I try to tone down a bit and develop the mental and emotional side of a situation, I get panned for what I was panned for putting in the first time. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, like he, he can't win. He figures he can't win. You can't win. And I think because he's trapped in this genre, right, which hasn't quite emerged yet in terms of, I guess, the public's, uh, I guess, high, I guess in terms of like, it's not really part of, lit of the literary canon at this time. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Mm -hmm. well, I think maybe we'll pick up on this in a few minutes when we go to do our scoring and talk about the investigation, because I'd, I'd really like to hear what your thoughts are on how you view the high window as an experimental text, at least in yes. in the in the evolution of the Marlowe character, because I'm not so sure I can I can view it as uh, as brightly through that lens as some others have, certainly as as he has. But I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. But sorry, let's uh, keep going. Yeah, absolutely. That's all right. So another thing, an another thing that he mentioned in another letter to Blanche Knopf. Uh, was, I hope the day will come when I won't have to ride around on Hammett and James Kane like an organ grinder's <laughs> monkey. <laughs> That's a clear, straightforward simile from him, too. Usually, really... usually they're not that they're not that direct. Well, he was into poetry, right? We do recall, we do remember that he was he did study that in his boarding school in England. So, of course, but in his presentation of of figurative language, he tends to be far more ornate than uh, than that. Yeah, but I, I think that kind of illustrates the, the bit of contempt, I guess, you could have for yeah. for being kind of stuck behind this. You know, he, he's, it's like you're on the it's like you're on the four way highway and you're stuck in front of a car that should be in a different lane and it's all in front of you and you can't see anything in <laughs> front of right. you That's and right. everything's yeah. all yeah. backed up and you're you're trying to move forward but you can't, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a terrible metaphor, but no, I got it. It's a bit tortured, but I'm with you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> Um, it's clear that in the critics' eye, Ray was at best elevating the pulp genre, but relied on his tropes and traps, as it were, treading old ground and keeping the audience in its respective niche, but not expanding. Chandler knew to catch people's attention, he needed to come up with something, quote-unquote, with a fresh and sudden touch. And yet, in our modern-day perspective, Ray was a pioneer, transforming a looked-down-upon look down genre, something akin to a comic book which itself would earn his respective renaissance years later, mm -hmm. uh, he was carving out a new genre, one that would find itself tied to the new form of art, cinema, or at least in regard to Hollywood anyway. I speak of what we, what the cineasts would call film noir. And though, and though we know he did not want to see him as a, he didn't want to see himself as the next step on the hard-boiled evolutionary ladder with Hammond and Kane, mm -hmm. Ray had already sold the rights to Pharaoh, my lovely, to RKO the previous year, and this had helped him in Sissio considerably. So he did. So Hollywood did help him out there for sure, mm -hmm. um, and this gave him the time and incentive to complete the high window. But again, while he may not be making money from royalties, I guess from the sales of his books, Hollywood is definitely interested in his work. That's and right. Of course, yeah. because Hollywood's interested in his work, then he's going to obviously going to profit from that. Because I guess the this is just when I guess these like when the Maltese Falcon was com was coming out, mm -hmm. uh, they were churning out these noirs. They were sort of, after the Maltese Falcon, they started to start churning out these noirs like no one's business because they're evidently very popular in the United States at this time. Um, uh, Josh, if I can interrupt you just for a quick second, buddy. Now, uh, when did Double Indemnity? When was Double Indemnity released? I think it was like 44, I believe. So he's close to writing the script then. He's very close, yeah. He's close to writing it, yeah. Yeah, we're getting very close to Ray Chandler's um, 
I was gonna say love affair, but altercation. Yeah. Altercation. Yeah. With, <laughs> I think that's probably with, better. With with Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you, buddy. See, I, I know that what we're 10, 11, maybe about that long away from his being fired, right? From um, uh, from the oil company. Yes. And although Sissy's death would really be the mark that would spiral him into his alcoholism, uh, I mean, how is he personally at this stage of his life? I mean, he's obviously published two books. His name is there, as you're saying. I mean, you're you're outlining it quite well. But how, how do you see him emotionally set up and situated? I think in this particular sense, he's still in his he's past his recovery stage mm-hmm. because Sissy took him back. And so after he got fired and he, and he was, you know, messing around as well. Um, and so he's basically, you know, he's not drinking as much anymore. He's into the work and he's in a period of create of, of, I guess, of creativity. And this is what keeps him going right all the way right. up until right. Sissy's death in a way, which is why I think he went he, he embraced Hollywood, I guess, uh, in the end. And got into that direction because he was supported by sissy and that really helped their lifestyle out right and this alcoholism rears his ugly head again when sissy passes away obviously so we can tell that you can tell that she was definitely a rock to him in her own way so a mother figure too and and that's going to be another thing that's interesting here that's an interesting development too because Mm -hmm. you have a mother figure but also one that he's in sexually involved with as well um and then you'd be throwing you know freud would have a lot to say i'm sure about this whole situation um (laughs) Perhaps Sophocles as well, uh, but no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, so he, he was basically stuck in a genre that he did, he wanted to kind of get out with and do something different with, and or do something totally different and fresh to really catch people's attention to him as a writer, because he was making profit of these from Hollywood. Maybe subconsciously he was still making he was still kind of making in that direction because he knew in the end it would profit him in some way, pushing that boulder up uh, up letting it roll down again or like. A Sisyphean sort of Sisyphean, yeah. experience, you know? It's a word that I would use sometimes to describe things. And if this sounds pretentious, you know, that's it's whatever. What it is. All I'm saying is, is that Ray had himself stuck like in a loop. Uh, and even there you though go. he was grumbling about it, he was still doing it. So he had to figure a way to pull himself out of it or keep going with what he was doing. So he mm-hmm. had a choice in his mind. And I still think to answer your question that he was probably in a good period in this time because he was creative at the time and him and Sissy were relatively happy. They had their cat. They they had money coming in. So, good. okay. Yeah. So, but we'll save our mincing and prancing with the high window later in the episode. Uh, when we light our pipes, <clears throat> it's time that we go through the broad strokes of Ray's narrative for the high window. Well, we know as readers of of Marlowe's character and his adventures and of Chandler more widely, I suppose, that plot isn't always, uh, is rarely, in fact, the chief concern of this man when he's writing his stories. Particularly Uh, in this story. Yeah, I mean, he he ties it all together to an extent in his stories, but uh, ironing out the creases and the folds of this one, let me tell you, has been uh, quite a challenge. Okay, (laughs) quite a challenge. Um, But you did it like within a day or so, so good for you, man. I appreciate uh, that you're able to kind of bring that down to like a um, a supplement uh, mm-hmm. in, a, in a way that, you know, I can just like take with a glass of water and just uh, <laughs> let, it, let it absorb in my body. And so I, I, I'm free. I'm free from convolution. <laughs> well, better a supplement than an enema. Oh, I was, was going to say a suppository. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yes. Thanks very much for that uh, intro and context there to the novel. Yes. And here I'm you go. Too anal yeah. right now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a plot summary, or at least what uh, the best I could do of the high window. And we'll be back after this to talk about our scoring for the novel. 
The story begins with Philip Marlowe visiting his latest client in Pasadena, Mrs. Elizabeth Bright Murdoch, a cantankerous, port-guzzling widow and matron who seems to freeze the warmth out of everybody that meets her, apart from her son, Leslie, and her secretary, a pretty, doe-eyed blonde named Merle Davis. Anyway, Murdoch hires Marlowe to reclaim a lost coin, missing from her husband's collection, the rare Brasher doubloon. She suspects her daughter-in-law, nightclub singer Linda Conquest. Yeah, that's her real name. Way to go, Chandler. Her son's marriage to Linda had been on the rocks for a wee while. No love, certainly, was lost between herself and Linda, the latter who has up and left. Well, Marlowe takes this much information, with a bit more impression and suspicion, and leaves, but is struck by how feeble and afraid of men Merle Davis, the secretary, appears to be. As is later revealed, Merle is afraid of men after suffering a sexual advance, harassment really, at the hands of Mr. Horace Bright, Leslie Murdoch's father and her former employee, and Elizabeth's first husband. Well, from the very start, Marlowe feels attracted to Merle, but more in a protective than sexual way. He observes enough of Mrs. Murdoch's behavior with her to suspect something dark and historical going on. In short, Merle dotes after and upon Mrs. Murdoch, despite being treated like a scab. Merle is also smitten by Leslie. Before leaving, Marlowe gets the names of Lois Magic, a friend of Linda's, and another great character named by Chandler, and Louis Vanier, her boyfriend, and he intends to start with them in his search. Now, as with the previous two Marlowe stories that we've covered here on the show, and which obviously preceded this one, The High Window is not a fair play mystery, in the true sense of the word, and linking up the plot points or gambling with whodunit hunches is far less important, both to Chandler and to us as readers, than developing a world of interest, atmosphere, and characters in which to set his action. And here's where the story gets really tricky. Leslie Murdoch follows Marlowe to his office to inquire why his mother hired him, but Marlowe doesn't budge. Leslie is a nervous sort of dude, though, clearly having some issues to sort out, and not just with his troublesome marriage to Linda. His father, he reveals, lost all of his money in the market crash of 1929 and committed suicide, leaving his mother to inherit the life insurance. Tied to that financial umbilical cord, Leslie rebelled by racking up nearly 12 grand in debt to the Idle Valley Club a gambling spot in the San Fernando Valley run by Alex Morney, and, as already mentioned, by marrying a nightclub singer named Linda Conquest. And as chance would have it, which is often the case in these complex plots of Chandler's, Lois Magic has actually married Alex Morney, so the web is tightened a little bit for Marlowe. Her relationship with Louis Vanier is something of an open secret. They're both fairly cold with him when he visits to inquire, Particularly Vanier, who acts suspiciously and gestures at Marlowe with what might be a gun under his robe, but what was probably just his finger. Either way, Marlowe leaves without getting any strict line or intel on Linda. And when he leaves Morney's house, Marlowe is followed for the second time that day by a blonde gentleman in a coupe. Marlowe calls his bluff and corrals him in a hotel bar, where he learns that his name is George Anson Phillips, a fairly wet-behind-the-ears gumshoe who wants to enlist Marlowe's help on a case that he can't quite handle. Marlowe agrees to meet him at his apartment later, and Phillips gives him a key. 
Meanwhile, Marlow follows a lead pulled from his original chat with Mrs. Murdoch and travels downtown to interview a coin dealer, a clever but money-grabbing old cat named Elisha Morningstar. Morningstar offers Marlow a chance to buy the missing coin for $1,000. Marlow agrees, on principle at least, and pretends to leave, but he hangs around long enough to hear Morningstar try to call Phillips, the detective. He leaves, trying to put the strings together. When he finally does exit the building, he's got a little bit more to work with and he knows that there's some connection to Phillips. He keeps his appointment with Phillips in a grotty neighborhood of Bunker Hill flat, but he discovers him dead in his bathroom. He then decides to play dumb and enlists the help of the manager on duty to see if he can discover any more information. He's a tall, red-haired dude who really just wants to be left alone to drink, but eventually helps after Marlowe playfully threatens to let his boss, Mr. Palermo, an Italian businessman, know about his lack of help. Well, the two end up dealing with a domestic across the hall from Phillips' apartment, and the man, Hench, is eventually arrested for the murder by the police who are called. Now, this whole part of the story plays out like one 30-page distraction, and all but throws you off the narrative road, but it does come a little bit clearer later when the character of Palermo is met on the page. Well, despite his references, chief among them being Lieutenant Randall from Farewell, My Lovely fame, the police are suspicious of Marlowe's story, particularly of why Phillips gave him a key and send Marlowe off with an ultimatum to tell everything he knows. Well, Marlowe returns to his office to discover that the Brasher doubloon has been mailed to him. Marlowe then calls Mrs. Murdoch, who informs him that the coin has already been returned to her. Well, highly suspicious now, and reckoning that it's best put out of sight until he can figure this growing mystery out, Marlowe safe keeps the coin in a pawn shop run by an egregiously racist caricature, then pops down to Morningstar's office to find him murdered. Around this time, Alex Morning's henchman invites Marlowe to come down to the Idle Valley Club to meet with the boss. It's here that Linda is to be found also, back to singing. Well, she wasn't really too hard to find at all. Morney wants to know, though, why Marlowe visited his wife, Lois. He's got eyes everywhere. But pretty quickly, he lowers his guard when he understands that he's not of any interest to Marlowe. Instead, and somewhat surprising to Marlowe, Morney hires him to investigate Vanier, the man with whom his wife is openly messing around, and offers him an ambiguous dentistry receipt as a starting point. After chatting with Linda, who seems to be on the level, Marlowe decides that she wasn't the one who stole the coin in the first place. Upon returning to visit Mrs. Murdoch, though, Marlowe doesn't buy the story that he's sold, about how Leslie actually gave the coin to Morney to settle his debts, only to change his mind again and take it back. Marlowe leaves angrily, knowing that there's more going on, but he curses Mrs. Murdoch for not being open. He suspects that some sinister secret is afoot, involving the frightened Merle Davis as well. The police, meanwhile, report that Hench, that drunk man across the hall from Phillips' apartment, has confessed to the murder of Phillips. But Marlowe discovers that he's actually covering for his landlord, Mr. Palermo, and isn't likely to be the real murderer. Add to this complex soup a surprise call from his apartment concierge. All right, he's not a concierge, but more of an attendant, who informs Marlowe that Merle Davis has arrived at his place and seems quite disturbed. Marlowe races home to find Merle in a state of nervous breakdown, claiming to have shot Veneer. Marlowe calms her down and inspects her gun and discovers that it hasn't been fired. It couldn't have been fired, in fact. He also pockets a hefty sum of $500 that she was supposedly delivering to Vanier from Mrs. Murdoch. 
Now Marlowe suspects blackmail, as the deliveries are regular, but Merle says nothing to that. Concerned for her health, he calls a doctor friend he has on retainer who shows up with the bedside manner and, later, the nurse that will help Merle out. Marlowe, on the other hand, reasons that she has probably seen something bad, so gets Vanier's address from the dental bill Morney gave him earlier and heads to scope out his place. Vanier is dead, all right. A headshot wound that looks like suicide. But a little too easily, so with everything else going on. Marlowe also sees a picture in the room that's fallen to the floor, a photo of a man falling from a high window with a woman behind him. While he's there, Alex Mornay arrives with Lois and Marlowe hides. He witnesses, or rather overhears, Mornay trick his wife into incriminating herself by imprinting the gun with her own fingers. A revenge, perhaps, for her infidelity and cuckolding of him? Well, when they leave, Marlowe wipes the gun clean and puts Vanier's dead prints on the gun instead. He reckons that somebody killed Vanier, but at least it won't be an innocent Lois who has to go down for it. Marlowe then heads to see Mrs. Murdoch and confronts her with what he now suspects. Her first husband, Horace Bright, once tried it on with Merle, and she was witness or possibly suspect to pushing him out of, or at least watching him fall from, the window. Vanier knew this and was blackmailing the family with the photograph. Mrs. Murdoch is angry and reluctant, but does admit it, spitting venom at Marlowe, wishing she'd never bothered getting him involved. Marlowe then confronts Leslie, her son, with the knowledge that he and Vanier had used the dental technology and supplies to duplicate the coin. The two had Lois hire Phillips to sell the fake coins, but Phillips was afraid of the case and instead mailed the coin to Marlowe with what he hoped later that day would have been a meeting with the detective. Vanier then kills Phillips in his apartment and the coin dealer Morningstar to cover his tracks. And Leslie then kills Vanier because he had threatened to kill Leslie if the scheme was ever brought to light. Leslie accepts this story from Marlowe and admits to it all. However, Marlowe doesn't turn him in, figuring that Vanier's rotten time was up anyway and that Leslie was just a moronic victim of a greater evil. Eventually, the police do connect Vanier to the coin forgeries and the murders, but they rule his death a suicide. At the end, Marlowe convinces Merle that it was Mrs. Murdoch who pushed her husband out of the window and then blamed Merle for it, both framing and brainwashing her into servitude over time, strengthening her grip on the vulnerable secretary. Marlowe dons his armor and chivalrously drives Merle out of California, away from Mrs. Murdoch, and back to her family home in Kansas, where her parents are delighted to have her back. Philip Marlowe says goodbye and turns his back on Merle Davis and her family and heads back to Los Angeles, feeling darkly poetic about the whole experience. I, I couldn't uh, do a better job myself, man. That was to the point and, and a good bit of levity and and very straightforward breakdown too. So, Okay, well, let's... Uh, good job. Let's, good thank job. you. Thank you. Let's reintroduce our PIPES acronym and uh, light them up. I'm just going to uh, pull here from my shelf of beautiful pipes. Uh, I'm going to have a... I'm going to do a... I think I'm going to do a hickory pipe today. I'm going to go for a classic Holmesian clay pipe. A clay pipe, okay, yeah. And uh, what sort of tobacco are you with today? Right from the fields of Virginia, I guess. <laughs> okay, right. Virginia gold. 
Virginia Gold, indeed. All right, let's uh, let's explain our acronym. Uh, Pipes breaks it down into the principles, the investigation, the perpetrator, the environs, and the secondary players in a story. And we give each of these a score out of five, which gives us an index for our scoring. Mm-hmm. And um, this is what we're doing for all of our stories. We did it for Sherlock Holmes. We're doing it for Marlowe. And we're going to do it when we extend this series out into just general reading once we're finished with our crime kick for a wee while. That's right. But let's let's begin then, Josh, shall we, with, uh, the, perp- with, with the principles. I mean, Marlowe is our detective, obviously. And I'm, I'm quite interested to hear what you thought of him in this story, because while he is still motivated by his nose and he gets, you know, into things that others wouldn't, uh, which is very much of his uh, of his own design. He's softer here, and I'm wondering mm-hmm. if I'm wondering if that sort of uh, chivalric, if I can use that term, um, I wonder if that chivalric bent to his writing here is Chandler's way of trying to mix with the ingredients and the recipe a little bit. I mean, he cares for this character of Merle Davis, who um, is really quite an oddball character in the story. He cares for her, and knows that she's up to her neck in something that isn't her problem, something that yes. isn't her doing. And he does want, uh, genuinely, once he figures out the story, more so as the story evolves, he does want to help her escape the clutches of Mrs. Murdoch. And, um, I mean, but, but at the same time, he has, he is as acerbic and as funny as ever, particularly when he speaks to Mrs. Murdoch after that first encounter. And mm-hmm. at the, I also like the scene where he's talking at the Idle Valley Club and again inside the club and the way he deals with... Um, with Prue and Morney. Yeah, with Prue and Morney are good. But uh, also Jesse Breeze, I thought that was yes. okay. Um, I'm just wondering, how do you read the principle here? Well, Marlowe talks tough in this, as usual, and he is tough in this, but he's really a soft touch. Like, we get some classic Chandler chivalry, as you know, as you were going, you were mentioning, you know, from Marlowe in this story. Um, we get that reinforcement of, you know, you can't always trust the law to do the right thing, that, you know, this the system, the way that it is. And Breeze may want to get his man, but he'll overlook corruption for the greater good in a way, or believing he's doing that for the greater good as well. And because he's politically tied up in that sense, situation, I find Marlowe in this, like, uh, particularly, like, you mentioned Merle Davis, right? And how this is Chandler to the bone. Like, this is not about sex for Marlowe, you know, for there's yeah, no very reward much, in yeah. that kind of sense with Merle Davis. He actually wants to help her out. If you notice, like, he doesn't, he's not even, like, really kind of smart with Merle, with Merle whatsoever, you know, only at the beginning when he's just kind of like introducing her, mm-hmm, is he that mm-hmm. way? He's very kind of like fraternal and caring about her in that way. And he wants to rescue her and get her out of the situation that he's in this web of uh, very ill-intentioned individuals, which also has like an ambiguity, you know, to those ill intentions as well, which makes things even more confusing uh, in that sense. But uh, I liked I really like Marlowe in this story. And I can see kind of Chandler is developing him mm-hmm. more from like the model of a hard boiled detective that he was trying to subvert and make a little different. And now he's kind of becoming this true Chandlerian character. Um, as they mentioned in the story, the shop soiled Galahad, right? Mm-hmm. So Yeah, that's right, yeah. Exactly. So he's becoming like this knight-errant sort of figure amongst, amidst all this corruption and miasma of Los Angeles itself. And he's like the low, he's like the one, I guess, beacon of light that's, you know, working within the system but doing the best that he can, even though the system is weighing him down in that sense. So yeah. 
Yeah, I, I and I, I found like his state of mind in the story, like he was bouncing back and forth, and and even though like he in in this particular story, which we'll go into and we talk about the investigation, I find that even though like he was kind of powerless overall, he was still like existing in the system, and we got his sorry, he was still existing in the story that we weren't really bothered by the fact that he doesn't really have. Uh, I guess an agency, so to speak. He has his own agenda. He wants to save this girl, and mm-hmm. then he has to put up with all the other bullshit surrounding this case. And, but, so I, I think in the end he got what he wanted. But at the same time, he, she got out. But Marlowe finds himself trapped right back in the system by the end of the story. He's still back into that chess match. Yeah, and I think you're right, Josh. Um, I think that he does get what he wants. And I'm not sure that we've really seen that before, because as this story evolves, it becomes clear, really, that the antagonist for him is Mrs. Murdoch. And if he can stick it to her and somehow save this girl, then he really has accomplished something good. You know, I feel as though that that becomes... That becomes uh, chief most in his eyes. And yeah. uh, it, it's kind of a strange way for the detective story to be presented. But I think in terms of sharpening the edges and polishing off the character, polishing the character for future installments, this is uh, a really interesting and ultimately, I think, successful uh Experiment. I don't know if we can call it that because a character is alive when you write him. So maybe he, a development of the character. You know, I think it's a really neat and effective thing that that Chandler decided to do here. Instead of just grunting out another story with Marlow doing the same sorts of things he did, we see that softer side that we knew was there before, but it it it's, it breathes a bit more here. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, I like too in that like because. Because you, you get the strength of Marlowe's character as a person that even some people are, at first when they see Marlowe, they just dismiss him immediately, you know, like Linda Conquest, for mm-hmm, example. Mm-hmm. And she's just, okay. Yeah, another, she's good with him, uh, isn't another, she? Another dick and whatever. And But by the end of the conversation she has, she's just like, she's probably feeling self-loathing at that point. And she's just like, just just go. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you're yeah. In, in a way, he wins that sort of uh, tete-a-tete between the two of them um, in that sequence because it made her realize, you know, like, her choices have not been quite good as well. And she maybe even in, in a way the writing indicates that she underestimated him as a person mm-hmm. um, in, in, in that sense. Yeah. Uh, why, why don't I just read a little bit there, share a little tiny bit from sure. that? Sure. Because uh, I think what you're saying is spot on. You're a man named Marlowe, she asked, looking at me. She put her hips against the end of the desk and crossed her ankles. I said I was a man named Marlowe. By and large, she said, I'm quite sure I'm not going to like you one damn little bit, so speak your piece and drift away. What I like about this place is everything runs so true to type, I said. The cop on the gate, the shine on the door, the cigarette and check girls, the fat, greasy, sensual Jew with the tall, stately board show girl, the well-dressed, drunk, and horribly rude director cursing the barman, the silent guy with the gun, the nightclub owner with the soft gray hair and the B-picture mannerisms, and now you, the tall, dark torture with the negligent sneer, the husky voice, the hard-boiled vocabulary. She said, is that so? and fitted her cigarette between her lips and drew slowly on it. And what about the wise cracking snooper with the last year's gags and the come-hither smile? <laughs> like, I think that's that's so revealing, because as you say, I mean, it, it calls him out, but at the same time, you see Chandler playing, pushing, really, the conventions, the tropes of the, the genre in which he's, he's, you know, he's writing. Exactly. I find the characters are very vivid and they stand out, and Marlowe, the principal, does quite well in this story. Yes, we're in his first person, you know, uh, almost fourth wall breaking mm-hmm. narration, but at the same time, 
uh, yeah, in, in narration. So, of course, we're drawn to Marlowe right away, but also he's written so well that um, we can't help but gravitate toward him as well. Mm -hmm. And so I, I give Marlowe almost full marks in terms of his portrayal in this story. Like uh, for the principal, I'm giving four out of five. Yeah, I went four out of five as well. I agree with what you're saying. Marlowe's fun in this but it's really nice to see that softer side, which we always knew was yeah. there, uh, exercised a little yes. bit more here. And the character of Merle uh, allows him, enables him to do that. And it is an interesting, though convoluted, um, route to getting to that, like to exposing that character. But, or sorry, that, that side of his character. But, it's, yeah, it's, I'm okay with that. I, I think four is a fair mark. And at a push, you know, four and a half, maybe, I don't know if this is the the best in terms of yeah, most entertaining. Yeah, four and a half is also, but, yeah. yeah, he's very entertaining. I like how he uses, like, dialogue uh, and or the way that he speaks and, his, and the way that he speaks to people as sort of his own armor, I guess, this shop sort of gal had, mm -hmm, you know. Mm -hmm. He uses it quite well so that he can begin, so he can deal with the people that he that he deals with, people who are much more, morally, on a moral level, much worse than he is, that's for darn sure. Yeah. And I find that uh, that he's armored in that fashion. And I think that's part of the character and why he's, you know, like he's, as we said, he's, as I said, he's a soft touch and, uh, as, or a softy, I guess you could say, um, you know, he is, the, he is the, the knight errant, but at the same time, he has different turn, he has different armor and different weapons that he uses then, I guess, as a modern day knight in the world that, that he inhabits. Yeah. Well, perhaps then if we're both on the same page with Marlowe, we can use this as a bridge into the investigation side of our scoring. Now, um, I'm wondering, Josh, how much of our impression of Marlowe in the story stems from the fact that he isn't really, unlike unlike the other two, the previous two texts, he isn't really in any sort of danger, particularly. Or, well, he's in danger legally with the police, and, and they are very suspicious of him. He, I never felt, reading the story, as though he was close to being killed, or he was never captured and beaten up, and he was never, he was never drugged. or And I, I feel that may, maybe that decision to not put his character in, you know, a victim role as yeah. allowed Chandler to kind of show the, the the more personable side of him. Yeah, I agree. We get his personal thoughts about the situation that he is in. Meanwhile, we have this whole, from the, you know, this whole, like, murder, we have the whole murders, theft, extortion plot, you know, rounding everything, forgery plot as well, all kind of melt, revolving around him. And yet all he's focused on is getting that girl Merle out of that terrible situation that she's in. Mm -hmm. And that's all he's focusing on. And that's that's what he's using. He's using, as I said, the weapons of, dial, of tough talk. He's using, you know, maybe just his handgun if he needs to, but not even that. Because the only time he's, as you said, that he is in danger, in my opinion, is when he's in, this, he's in, he's in Palermo's place across the street mm -hmm. from <clears throat> where uh, George Phillips was killed. Yeah. And that's the only time I thought maybe that he could be in danger because at that time I thought maybe, you know, Palermo knew something or he was connected somehow to Philip's death or whatever. And then he was about to piss off a mobster essentially, yeah, I guess you yeah. could say. And that was kind of maybe like the red herring that uh, Chandler throws at us, I suppose. And I guess he also threw us a red herring with the Alex Mornay scene because we're following him being followed by Eddie yeah. Prue and we know that yeah. he's a dangerous man, but yeah. He, and he, he kind flips of, the trope and he flips he sure the trope. does. Like, yeah. Yep. We're back to him because in a moment we're all of a sudden we're back to the big sleep. We're back to Eddie Mars all of a sudden. Right. Um, and then what he does is he flips the trope. And because he's able to read, you know, um, 
more easy and this this guy isn't really a tough guy per se he's just a, a former b-movie actor who's trying to look like something else there's this whole ve veneer over everyone everyone is not what they seem to be it go that goes deep down with the uh the murdochs because as i said they're nouveau reach they are i probably pronounced that wrong i apologize nouveau uh, reach you got it buddy nouveau reach okay i just probably okay very good my french isn't the best but uh anyway <laughs> uh yeah, so I just think because they're pretending to be something that they're not because everyone knows that while, yes, they do have the wealth, when you when you go to their house and see how they display that wealth, they do it in a very kitschy kind of way, yeah, right? Yeah, very much so, yeah. Yeah, very, very much so, like trying too hard and they're revealing that that, pre that pretense and Marlowe sees right through and everyone sees through mm -hmm, it, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this is the one reason I think is that he is able to win compared to the other stories because he's not Eddie, there's Eddie Mars and the police corruption but at the same time in the second book you get the police corruption and you get uh what's his name is it browning or i'm trying to remember try, i'm trying to remember the name of the big like honcho in um uh, in that farewell my lovely the guy who runs the oh, the, uh, the mayor figure the mayor figure yeah, yeah i'm runs, not sure i can't remember who, who runs the, the, the casino ship anyways mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh that's another example right this is a system that he can't beat but he has to somehow solve the case within that's that right. system yeah yeah. In this thing here, Miss Murdoch is just as I said, nouveau riche. There is nothing that the, the only way she has power is because she's taken it herself, and Mer and Marlowe is able to, I guess, um, uh, bypass this by manipulating her in her own way by figuring her out, figuring out what you know what makes her tick and what her actual agenda is here and what she's done, and so then he's able. That's how he's able to beat her because she has no one supporting her. I guess from from below or above i guess you could say mm -hmm. yeah yeah well you know keeping with or, or perhaps beginning with uh, mrs murdoch i i really loved the hook uh of the story i love the idea of chasing a missing coin and you know with just like we had in the big sleep with general sternwood and then in farewell my lovely with mrs florian there's a heavy investment at the beginning of this film in developing character and setting and chandler starts this mrs murdoch scene and it really pays off to get me interested at least as the story goes on though it is i i don't know like i find that the hook suddenly disappears the hook and disappears yeah you're, you're, you're pulled downstream into this other storyline and it's not as, I guess it's, it's not. It's, it's, you're wondering. You're wondering all the way through. Where is this going? Where is this connecting to? Right. Yeah. And 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 so you kind of lose that momentum. I guess you could say. Now, while I'm still enjoying all the different characters in retrospect, I'm enjoying how Los Angeles is displayed, the different areas, talking about Pasadena and and you know and like the and the new wealth there talking about um you know bunker hill in particular how it used to be this like very rich area back in the day and then then of course eventually got taken over by a much lower income i guess families in that mm -hmm. time period and became very sort of um grotty yeah a, a grotty sketchy area like well i'll talk about bunker hill when we get into the environs i i think but mm -hmm. i do agree with you though that we do get pulled we lose i guess the what kind of grabs us in the narrative yeah and then all of a sudden like it's explained to us at the very end almost like this guy teague appears and near mm -hmm. at the very end and it connects somehow to the main story with uh mrs murdoch but it's almost like he's trying too hard to make it connect uh, and I, I maybe he felt like he needed to do that at the very end for the regular readers to enjoy his book he Maybe. wanted to make it all connect for them, but he really didn't have to. 
And that no. would make the book even more experimental in that sense as well. But he didn't go too experimental, I guess you could say. Well, um, yes. I, it does I've... feel convoluted at times, the narrative. That's, that was my um, diminishing factor towards the investigation. I felt that the investigation was too convoluted, particularly when that hook is dropped and the coin is returned. We know there's still going to be some chat about the coin, but I felt as though the immediacy of the hench, um, yes. the hench and Jesse Breeze, you know, interval there with, with the whole, the murder charge and all of that stuff, the arrest That's and the right. cop interview. I found the cop scenes really less interesting here than in either of the previous two stories. And for me, I really thought that, you know, if that energy, that if the energy that Chandler had used to build the cop scenes and the hench murder and the Phillips murder and all of that, if that had been reinvested into the Leslie Murdoch and Vanier stuff, I think that would have really helped make those two figures a little more interesting as perpetrators. And, yeah, and I then, definitely agree. Because I think Vanier, like when you first meet him, he's mm -hmm. kind of like this panty waist. Like mm -hmm. you, you don't, you don't really kind of find him a menacing character whatsoever. And you're wondering, you know, just how like so he's obviously working for someone. And then meanwhile, he's building up Morney as well already yeah. in the story. Yeah. In the story. So I think he intentionally wanted to have Vanier see someone that you just wouldn't really respect. And yeah. then, no, you don't. He's he's not someone who does the things on his own. But if, in fact, like we know he does all these terrible stuff uh, later on in this in, in the revelation at the end, you know, like we know that he killed Phillips. We know that, well, first he clubbed Phillips and mm -hmm. then he shot him in the That's face. Right, yeah. uh, we know that, uh, you know, he's responsible for a lot of bad things in the story and his end was, you know, was well-deserved. Um, yeah, he killed Morningstar as well. Yeah, and Morningstar. And speaking of the character names, I mean, Morningstar, I mean, seriously? Yeah, I know, right? Just call, just call him Lucifer for the love of you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not talking about, like... I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, and I'm thinking, too, and I'm thinking of L.A. and Noir. Like, I wonder, like, was what was Neil Gaiman talking about? I know, because mm -hmm. I believe Lucifer... Uh, Neil Gaiman created the character of Lucifer from his Vert for Vertigo comics. Correct mm -hmm. me if I'm wrong on this, whoever's listening... Yeah. And the character's name is Lucifer Morningstar, and he works as like a detective almost in Los Angeles. So there's got to be some Chandler connection there, for, or, or yep. at least a, a nod for sure. Oh, you're not you're probably not far wrong at all. Um, yeah. If if I could drag us back just for a second to finish up chat on the investigation. Yeah. Structurally, yeah. structurally, you know, I think the first two stories, the first two novels, because they're built of short stories, and I, re I remember discussing this when we talked about them there the is a is there it's sound yeah but there's a moment where we know this is one story ending and the other one being put in and, and although in some yes. cases the artifice is quite transparent i find that a bit more satisfying in terms of in terms of following the story whereas here you're really swimming through like a bucket of noodles you know and hoping at the end that you get some some, some sort of straightness out of it and oh, you I mentioned that the bucket of noodles comment uh, in a previous conversation we had, and I'm just I'm, I'm enjoying this. Uh... But that's kind of how I I'm thinking about it, right? Like I remember reading a, and I've, this goes back 20 years now. I remember reading a Rex Murphy review of one of the Star Wars prequels, and uh, he had said that if you want to figure out the plot of the uh, the George George Lucas's Star Wars prequels, take a bucket of spaghetti, mix it with a bucket of eels with a stick. And then, <laughs> and you've got it right, type thing. So, when it comes to something convoluted, I mean that that's just an image I go to. But I do feel as though a lot of the secondary players in this story don't really pay off, um, particularly Hench and particularly Phillips, because no, I, I that we we're, we don't get or sorry, um, 
Hench doesn't really pay off for me. Uh, we Hench don't get a red herring. Right? He's a red herring. He's yes, he's an yeah. obvious red mm-hmm. red herring. Leslie Murdoch, but the Leslie Murdoch and Vanier stuff could have really been. I, I would have appreciated more development of that, less of the red herring, because you've got enough red herrings going on with Alex Morney and with Pietro Palermo, and even with Morningstar. You know, there's a, there's a bit of a red herringness going on there too. So, I feel like we got enough things that could distract us, and why not build up our main, our big bad a little bit more? But. I, I guess I'm looking for the simplicity that Chandler's not interested in. He doesn't want to give you plot simplicity. He wants to give you complexity and keep you guessing, right? Absolutely, which makes him very different from Hemingway, despite the comparisons. So uh, my, my score for investigation, I think in terms of the three stories, this is my least favorite um investigation and it's a little disappointing to say that because i love the hook so much and i do like that softer side and the merle davis um i like the merle davis angle and i like the hook a lot in this story and it certainly isn't unentertaining you know it's it's fun to be there but it's not as fun for me to read this story and to try to play the guesswork as the other two i went two and a half for me i know that's a bit cold but i did feel like on the merit of its investigation, I'm probably not going to recommend this one as much as I would the other two. I was three. Okay, cool. I did like I liked the agency of Marlowe in the story, and I like kind of like how he was he was kind of like in the middle of everything. As I said, the shop soil Galahad. He just wants to bring Merle back to her family, mm-hmm. and he's just navigating all these twists and turns of Los Angeles and the people who populate it. Whether it's Palermo the gangster, whether it's the police, a very kind of uh, paint by numbers version of the police detectives we've seen from the previous stories. The name Breeze gives an ephemeral kind of feel to the um, how these how these policemen are these detectives um, are portrayed in this story uh, in comparison to what we've seen in the other books, yeah. who are much more yeah. layered and detailed. We know Marlowe's playing a game with them because he has to to protect Merle, and he doesn't want and he also doesn't want to get tied up with the, with the law in that fashion. He wants to solve the case. Um, and uh, it, all that does is that just brings a, a pressure on on um, Marlowe when he's dealing with uh, Miss Murdoch in the story, mm-hmm. uh, because that that creates some great scenes be between the two of them and builds her more her character up more in the story. So that's what I think their function is is, is to maintain is to create that pressure, uh, that tension between Marlowe and uh, Miss Murdoch. That's a good observation. Um, yeah, I, I just think you know Chandler tried too hard to tie everything together. I mentioned that. Um, I, we're given hints at how everything that we, you know, that we have read about indicates the clues that were there for us to find. But in the end, I found like the whole thing with Teague, the, the whole idea about the forgery at the very end. Like I kind of like the idea of like the brash, to, the brasher doubloon being sort of like, as you said, the hook. But that was just kind of like the it just opens up the whole new territory of, uh, I, I guess, a criminal activity going on that Marlowe was just kind of like stuck in the web of, of you know what I mean? And I do like that, but I just mm-hmm. found that again, it just felt too convoluted and he didn't quite plan it out as well. Yeah. And, uh, but this shows that he was trying to do something different. So it I does, really appreciate yeah. that. But you don't feel like, as I said, you don't feel those breaks in the story like you did, with, especially with the big sleep. You know, for example, as soon as the blackmailer in the big sleep is they find his body and then this and then the killer of what's his name, Joe Brody, after Joe oh, Brody, right, death, yeah, right yeah. by Geiger's lover, mm-hmm. um, then the story kind of breaks and then all of a sudden it becomes a different story from that from that point on. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I never felt that in in, in this. So I, so that was it. That, that was refreshing. Um, I like the idea that we're that from the very beginning, Marlowe is pulled into this web and he can't get out of it. So mm-hmm. I thought he did that pretty well, but he just made it too convoluted to really enjoy that angle, I guess you could say. There's yeah. too many angles. 
Fair point. So what about Mrs. Murdoch as a perpetrator? Let's move on to perpetrators now. And let's talk about her, the web that she has spun, because, man, it's a, it's a web and she tightens it and mm. she is tightened within it. I mean, it, it's a real walking contradiction. It's a sticky thing, this. What do you think of Mrs. Murdoch? Uh, her, as a villain, she's very subtle in that fashion. She's ambitious and she wants to, you know, make her family prominent like all the other uh, new money in Los Angeles and she'll do anything to keep it. Mm-hmm. And at first, you know, Mar- uh, Chandler writes, but he does it subtly, uh, more revealing more and more as we go on about Miss Murdoch. You know, she's always playing solitaire all the time. Like mm-hmm. she's, mm-hmm. but the thing is that she's solitaire, she she's playing, <laughs> she, she, and she cheats as well. Absolutely. <laughs> she puts on, uh, she puts on like this veneer of like, I'm just another one of those powerful socialites in Los Angeles, but Marlowe sees right through her and he doesn't, he doesn't respect her like he would other people because he does, he knows that there's no real power behind her, only the power that she has brought on herself, you know, That's to right. keep things yeah. in control. So once you do, so once you kind of break her, then everything kind of falls apart. And this is what Vanier had over her the whole time. Like Vanier is kind of shown as a lightweight, I guess, when he's de- depicted and we don't think much of him because there is, angles that that Chandler gives us that make us you know find other characters uh, a better suspect for the perpetrator mm-hmm. but in the end it is Vanier uh, and but it's also Miss Murdoch's um, own weaknesses and her own uh, I, I guess and her own crimes that really started thing off in the first place yeah and we all get back to that with the Merle story so and I I, I enjoy her her dynamic in their in their conversations we can tell that she's probably intimidated by Marlowe. She knows she's dealing with something that she puts on the air is that she's dealing with someone beneath her. Mm-hmm. But she kind of also is probably afraid of him in a way, too, because she knows that she's got someone on, uh, you know, in her employee that is going to probably get to the details of things that she, does, she doesn't want known. Yeah, which is why she tries to close things quickly as soon as Leslie returns with the so-called coin. Exactly. And that ties into the main story in the end with, well, not the main story, but the hook, as as you said. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um and this web of murder that that you know that we that we go through throughout the narrative, mm-hmm. uh, and again, I mean, I think Mrs. Murdoch, as you're saying, I mean, she is this nouveau riche criminal of self-made money, but uh, you know, the, she, she's also very human too. Like, she is very human, yeah, of course, I, yeah. So, in regard to uh, Miss Murdoch and her motivations, so when she pushes her husband out the window. So presumably for forcing herself on Merle, was it for the reasons that she was ambitious and she wanted to get rid of him and get his fortune? Or was it that she was jealous of Merle and and she was kind of like a jealous woman and she reacted violently and then killed him? And then for some particular reason, she even has this layer of guilt where because she hasn't disposed of Merle, she hasn't killed her. She doesn't want to do that. So why is she keeping Merle in her house? Like, is, she, is it because she's a, she, in a way she feels guilty hmm. and and she wants to protect her? But then, of course, she's making her believe that she killed this man. Yeah. So I, she's mentally driving her crazy. That's so is right. This part, is this part of her jealousy? Is she tormenting this woman deliberately or is it subconsciously? Her ego is so strong that she's, she's not seeing that, I suppose you could say. But she's also playing the game terribly, which is why Marlo is able to figure her out. Well, I think that Miss Murdoch is keeping Merle on staff if you want to think of it that way well and because of the blackmail yeah she, course, she's blackmail but i think that she is her protection she's she's her protection from the law she's her protection from uh, any sort of but if uh, she gets rid of but if she gets rid of merle then mm-hmm. vanny doesn't have too much to go on right i mean why not 
Well, I guess there's the picture, right? So I guess, yeah. Yeah, there's the photo. I mean, she's just, as far as Vanya is concerned, Merle is just the the gopher, right? That's true. I mean, Murdoch is still the implicated murderer. That's that. That's true. Yeah. And the photograph isn't clear enough. You know, I mean, it it, it could put it could put either one of them in a bad situation, but um, I think that Murdoch using Merle as that sort of buffer between herself and jail, or herself and maybe the truth. Even do you know? I mean, she has perhaps over uh, over years of drinking port and mental manipulation. Maybe she's also convinced herself that Merle is the real killer. You know, Merle's the real bad one, and he, she therefore well, feels she some sort of sick protection over her. I don't know. Sick, I mean, it's weird. Sick yeah. protection and also punishment in her own way because. Again, she, this is also the jealous woman who was slighted by this younger woman and forced her to kill her husband, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. even though like Merle didn't do anything, it, it was actually Mr. Bright that did everything, and that led to what happened. It, it's uh, it still is very ambiguous, and I like that it's not a hundred percent cold cut. You know who is good and evil in this story? Everyone is believes they're doing right by who they are, but at the same time. You know, like everyone's all guilty, I guess, in this particular story here. Yeah. And Vanier is the culprit per, per se. He's the one mm-hmm. who he, he's, the, he's, he's the main villain, I guess, or he's at least um, billed as the main villain of the story. But it's a data uh, drop. It just kind of pops us. It's, it's, it's there it, in the it's last eighth dump. of the book, yeah, you know, and that, that's disappointing. And it, takes us, it takes us by surprise. We're like, oh, OK, well, we got this all wrong. And, and, and unfortunately, it doesn't make us admire the mm-hmm. the complex web that I'm using uh, take it have a take a drink whenever I say the word web in this episode mm-hmm. by the way yeah. um, it makes us frustrated with the narrative instead because we have to look upon Vanny in a whole different way near the, just as the novel is ending yes you know, but I, I don't think but I don't think we ever can because unlike Carmen Sternwood in the big sleep who we it was revealed as the ending as the villain then you can go back and say holy shit I see this I see this I yes, see this yes. whereas but here you can't, you can't do that we can't we do can. that because Vanier yeah. is so underdeveloped in the story we don't even get to know about him through other characters we only get to know what we see of him when Marlo really meets him or yeah. when um you know we, we only ever get we don't. We just don't get to see him. He's so undeveloped that when he's dropped as the main villain, we're like, oh. But we can't go back and play the matchup game because we don't have any character there to do anything with. So I think in a story of two perpetrators, Mrs. Murdoch and Vanier, I I'm going Mrs. Murdoch for the win, and Vanier is a really poor score. So I, I'm even and out at uh, three in the middle here. I went for four. I was a little more generous. Okay. Um, uh, Murdoch was a very. She uh, was great. It was a great villain for me, and I yes. think, but I, she would almost been a five if Vanier was a great backup villain. I guess you could say if Vanier was like some, you know, Littlefinger type character more so and mm-hmm. stuck out a bit more as a villain in the story as opposed to just being like a henchman. I mean, Hench had more presence than Vanier did in the story. You absolutely, know I mean? absolutely. Yeah. Palermo, Palermo was only like in one scene, it te- technically, mm-hmm. technically, and he had yeah. more. He had more menace than than uh, than than Vanier. Mm-hmm. So it just goes to show. It's almost like if we watch this as a TV show, like a, police, a typical police procedural, we would they'd probably hire some guest actor to play Vanier. So we would know automatically based on how TV procedures That's right, go yeah. that yeah, he's that the bad he's guy. The per- he's the perpetrator. <laughs> but we don't have that option in you know in uh, fic- in on the printed page. 
So, nah, and I'll bring us back to what I said a moment <laughs> ago, you know, take away some of the Hench and Phillips and uh, Lieutenant Detective Lieutenant Breeze and Spangler stuff and invest that into Vanier's relationship with Murdoch, Leslie Murdoch. And I think you yes. got something that works a lot better as a reveal at the end of the story. So I think yeah. three is fair and four, I think, is really generous for you. So that's good. But uh, like you say, you're, you're leaning heavily on Mrs. Murdoch. And I agree with you. Yeah. She's a real Miss, cool person. Yeah. Real good yeah, one Ms. to read. Miss Murdoch, yeah, she was very interesting to me. I liked her as a character. She could have built and built up even more, I think, if they, there was less focus on the doubloon storyline, I, I, mm-hmm. I, I guess you could say. It seems like she would have even probably have been a much more uh, uh, bigger villain and worthy of the full five if she was in a different story, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I guess you could say, like if they just focused on this angle with him trying to save Merle from this woman, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which would be more straightforward, I guess you could say. But Marlowe was just seeing what what, what was the real crime in the picture like he didn't care about the doubloon he didn't care about the forgery he cared about you know getting merle out of that situation from miss murdoch and that to me makes her the main perpetrator of our hero's Mm -hmm. uh goals the true antagonist i guess you could say yeah, well, let's let's go on and talk environs then. Um, I, I'll let you take over here, buddy. I'll just say from my part that I thought that the Idle Valley Club was really really good section for um, external and internal descriptions. Yeah, I like I like Bunker Hill. I know you're going to say something about that. It's really really well written about the Belfont Building, you know, which contains Morningstar's office and the dentistry office, which I mean, is lesser used in the story, but I, yeah. I I really bought that. I loved the scene with the the lift operator who gives him the key. I uh, thought that yeah, yeah. Grandy was great. I like that stuff. So there are some cool little things going on within the environment here. But I felt overall it didn't quite pop off the page the way some of the other ones have. And um, while we do have some really excellent writing of the settings here um they tend to be few and far between there's not so much of a canvas kind of landscape drawn out for me here and maybe then i'm not saying there has to be but if you're picking this one up you're not going to get the los angeles described in all of its range the way you might have in farewell or the way you did in the big sleep but you do get some really bright spots with Bunker Hill and um, some of these internal spots like the Idle Valley Club, which is, by the way, a great name for a criminal den when you think about Devil's Workshop and Idle Hands and all that stuff. I think you got something you want to share about Bunker Hill? Uh, yeah, just a section where he describes Bunker Hill when he first gets there, uh, after, you know, when, when, when he's going to check the, when it, I guess when he's going to look for Phillips, right? Uh, Bunker Hill is old town, lost town, shabby town, crook town. Once very long ago, it was the choice residential district of the city. And there are still standing a few of the jigsaw gothic mansions with wide porches and walls covered with round end shingles and full corner bay windows with spindle turrets. They're all rooming houses now. Their parquetry floors are scratched and worn through the once glossy finish. And the wide sweeping staircases are dark with time and with cheap varnish laid on over generations of dirt. In the tall rooms, haggard landladies bicker with shifty tenants. On the wide, cool front porches, reaching their cracked shows into the sun and staring at nothing, sit the old men with faces like lost battles. I love that line, faces with lost battles. Yeah, yeah, that is really good. Just broken people stuck who are in this area that was very up, you know, upscale at one point, mm-hmm. and now they've all, you know, this is the area because of how Los Angeles has developed over time. This is kind of like the old area that's kind of gone to seed, I guess you could say. But there's and, still those honest folk who are trying to figure out the world around them as it's quickly changed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. And that express uh, that 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 section, Josh, that goes on, doesn't it? And describes the candy stores that are so rotten, or the candy stores where you could get worse than just the bad candy in them, or something like that. It's quite a nice sentence. 
Yeah, just seeing all like the old, the I guess the old shop fronts, you know, that were probably you know so mm-hmm. upscale back in the day, and now they're all dilapidated into, you know, probably dens of inequity of yeah. uh, places where f- criminal fronts are probably very popular. As we know, the mo- the mo- the mafia has control over this area because Palermo seems to be the main figure. So that's right. Well, I went three and a half for my environs. What did you give the environment of uh, the, uh, the high window? I personally love the environs in okay. uh, in the high window, the Pasadena and Pasadena how it's described, the Murdoch house in particular. Um, I just loved how Mar- Marlowe navigated that, and it was something different than what we saw before, like with the Sternwoods and the Grails. Mm-hmm. Um, then we have, you know, the Bunker Hill as I described, Phillips apartment building, uh, just everything in there, like the people, the stores, the old men with bat with you know with lost battles on their faces. As I said, um, Palermo just kind of ruling that whole area. It's a very just how like all the characters just popped out, very Dickensian. All right. All these different all okay. these different environments. I love the nightclub as well. Like uh, that was very well described. Yeah, that was excellent. It you really was. You could definitely feel the atmosphere of that whole sequence. Mm-hmm. Marlowe's mm-hmm. apartment is still great. Um, and Marlowe's office is still great like the office building had a lot of character to it despite being an office building it was just and the, this the whole idea with the you know with the lift bringing things up and down and the different layers and how that building was tied to the whole story more so than the doubloon was um i found that really interesting as well so overall like i give the mm. environs uh, uh i give it a four i you didn't get like a lot of description as you would in the previous books but i felt that this wanted to take you all over los angeles and making it much more expansive i guess you could say to illustrate again the complexity of everything going on around Marlowe, it would make sense that everything was stretching all across the city you know this new wealth this new corruption uh this emerging los angeles it's almost like a snowball effect, I guess you could say. You know, like when you roll a snowball down a hill in wet snow, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger um, as it get, as it expands. And I think that's what he was trying to show about Los Angeles in the story. And I just felt that in the atmosphere. Well, I'm really surprised to hear you say that. I mean, having having heard you say that, you only went a half mark above me. So um, you're far more celebratory, I think, in, in regaling your, your appraisal of it than I was. But I think three and a half is a fair mark. And if you're going yeah. four, then that makes that makes perfect sense. But yeah. I didn't I didn't think that this story uh, was anywhere near as decorative or as ornate or as really um, chilling in its environment or as suggestive as Farewell, My Lovely, where you've got that no. sort of, you know, I, I just I just didn't capture it at all. But I did like certain parts of it really spoke to me, but it didn't as a whole really brighten out that way on the page well, for me. That's my argument is that I found that like the variety of environs in this story, it was mm-hmm. showing the bigger picture of Los Angeles instead of right. a yeah, particular of area. Smaller ones. Okay. And not only that, Pharaoh My Lovely also featured a fictional city as well in there like basically yeah, like, okay right yeah and and so, also a bond layer, <laughs> a James and, a, bond and, a, layer. And, and a bond layer yeah so he was much more in pulp in pulp universe i i like yeah in pulp, he was in pulp yeah. universe in that story and here i think he's just trying to bring a city to life with all its characters mm-hmm. okay um, cool which we'll, well get let's into now yeah, yeah let's, let's talk about characters. let's get into those secondary characters there are uh, like <laughs> like like the other ones we're teaming we're heaving here we've got a heavy breath with the secondary characters several of whom don't really amount to much apart from just sort of plot 
herrings, as you said. Um, Morningstar is interesting. I, I love the description of the hair in his ear coming out long enough to catch a moth, you know? like there's, Picking his nose. <laughs> picking his and, nose. And picking his ear yeah. wax, yeah. Very gross, this guy. Um, yeah. But a man who knows his business very well. Palermo is almost a non-starter. Morny yes. really is, is a non-starter. And non-starter. as you say, he flips flips the switch with the trope there using Morny's yeah. character. Spangler is all right. Breeze is... I just found the cops a bit tiresome in this one. Um, yes. They do have... Like, they do threaten to put the squeeze on Marlowe, and legitimately so. I mean, how did he have a key to Phillips' apartment, right? I mean, that all of this makes sense at the time. But I'm just there for narrative momentum. In, absolutely. In or, or narrative breaks, you know, narrative yeah. break, because it, it, it slowed down for me that what was a great hook. And anyway, uh, Eddie Prue was, and, and deserved, along, I thought, with Lois Magic, Eddie Prue deserved a little bit more time because he was telegraphed early on in the story, you know, as the guy with the, the weird eye and the scar on his face. But He's we, like a Dick Tracy villain or something. Yeah, but he, we didn't get to see much of him either. No, and, exactly. And it's, and that it's was a red herring that was yeah. thrown at us. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of red herrings in this story. And then he turns out just to be kind of like, you know, Palermo or Morney's guy who turns out to be actually okay. Uh, you know, he, he's outside of Vanier's house with uh, when, when Marlowe comes out of it and does a little checkup on how he's getting on. But it's, it's just kind of a... No payoff with him. Linda Conquest, no payoff with her. No payoff, nothing. Uh, you know, that's, and, and I get it because this isn't a story where we need to look at women's legs. This isn't a story where he's chasing tail. Like, I, I understand that the girls don't need to be, and, and deliberately so, they're not decorated in that way. They're not sexually glamorized in quite the same way. No. Um, because, because this is a story where we want to see the romance, the capital R chivalry, right? Yeah, capital the R capital. chivalry. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. The, the, the true Chenlerian romantic hero, basically. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, it, it was serviceable. The secondary cast is there to and can, it's, it's there to connect and to play on the strings of the plot. So it, it does what it should do. But apart from like the, the coolest one in here was Pop Grandy. You know, like I liked Pop Grandy a lot. I thought that was cool. Morningstar was cool. I like the older figures who get some time on the page here and have something to do. But Hench was, was dull to me. Uh, I feel like a lot of these are cut from the same cloth that we've seen before. You've yes. got Eddie, Eddie Prue reminded me a lot of uh, the fella that gets boffed in The Big Sleep. Uh, you mentioned oh, him, Joe uh, Brody. Yeah, well, Joe Brody, I found, was more like Hench. And then I found that Eddie Prue was... Yeah, sorry, like, sorry. Yeah, yeah Eddie Eddie he, Mars. Yeah. Yeah, I found Prue was supposed to be more like Canino, uh, Mars's like... Hench, oh, yeah, yeah, in, yeah. In, who was much more, more... He was another, like, a menacing... Uh, Dragon, I guess you mm-hmm. could say. That's the TV tropes term for, like, mm-hmm. the henchmen of, like, the main villain, essentially. Yeah, well, I, I mean, the secondary cast was good. Um, I think we're saying the same thing, aren't we? That there's not a lot of originality in them outside of two or three of them that... Yeah, and despite what she was to the narrative, Merle wasn't really particularly developed, more so no, than being just really a wasn't. damsel in distress. Mm-hmm. Like, like there wasn't really any kind of deepness looking into her mental situation. But I guess because we're seeing it through Marlowe's eyes, we're only seeing it in that fashion. So I guess Chandler did right there. But when you introduced a character like that, you would be expect some depth, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Maybe back then they didn't, but I think yeah. nowadays I think that would be more explored. But again, if you're constrained to first person narration and seeing through the eyes Good of show. the antagonist, yeah. Good point. then you gotta find a way to illustrate that. And maybe he just he wasn't able to figure figure out how to do that with your character, I suppose. Yeah, that's that's a very good observation because we are locked into that framework, aren't we? Because of I'm not his, sure uh, is Merle intelligent? Is Merle like intelligent and and she's traumatized? Yeah, that's Merle how just, I read it. Is Merle just naive or is or and is she kind of simple? 
you know, I, I read her as being as being yeah. traumatized more than anything else, like brainwashed into after years of service to this woman, you know, into thinking that she actually does love and care for her. Like, I see her she as a victim. Keep, yeah. She does keep the accounts in her own way. So she she does have a business kind of That's attitude true, yeah, of yeah. getting things yeah. done. So her previous fastidiousness is still present in mm -hmm. her situation. Mm -hmm. But she but she's under a, a definitely a, mm -hmm. a, there is a burden weighing on her for sure. Absolutely. Well, that's a 3.5 for secondary characters and players for me, which brings my pipe scoring to a 16.5. And just before turning it over to you for the last word and your last scoring, I would say that a 16.5 out of 25 might feel like a little bit low for a Chandler story. But in comparison to the, the previous one, Farewell My Lovely, which I still think is the best of the three that we've had so far, I think that The, high window, the high window is a good book. I would definitely recommend it for more of Chandler's great quips, his, you know, his Iconic acerbic narration is is really good. There are some, as you say, bright spots of um, of character and of atmosphere. Some interesting hooks and play out in the investigation. But on the whole, I wouldn't recommend this one before perhaps uh, one of the, one of the previous two. That's that's my take. But it was still fun to read, and I'm I'm looking forward to the Lady in the Lake, which I believe is our next adventure. Yeah, uh, the same. I was three and a half as well with the supporting okay, characters. Okay, cool. Um, I like the variety that we got, but I found that they were a little slim that we couldn't quite latch onto them, I guess you could say. And that was also creating the convolution of the storylines uh, that was making it difficult as well. So we had all these characters introduced that you wanted to know more about, but you never mm -hmm. did by the end of the story because that wasn't the point of the story. Yeah. But I'm like, oh, okay, well, I guess I read that. I, I felt kind of like maybe I missed something. And in the narrative and in terms of how the characters were portrayed, that to me, that diminishes you know what i what, what i can get from each of these categories in particular the supporting characters uh -huh. so while i enjoyed you know like the rogues gallery that we got for the perpetrators uh again i'm sticking with i'm going to three and a half for the supporting characters as well overall like and that so, brings you to an 18.5 buddy yeah there we go mm-hmm so I think we, we, we kind of saw this one eye to eye as well, but uh, you were a little bit more generous in a few areas than I was. Yeah. A, a couple of points I wanted just to make before we end the high window here. Remember I mentioned about, I think it was in The Big Sleep, about the double murder, that, the double homicide that occurred between the son of an oil tycoon and his secretary. Yes. Uh -huh. uh, yeah. The, the, I think it's the um, the the Donahue case, I believe it is. Anyways, they made a reference to that uh, in the Cassidy the, case. Yeah, the Cassidy case. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But if you also think about it, because we know now that it was the tycoon's son that uh, shot his that you know that shot the servant and then killed himself afterwards, right? Mm -hmm. But they blamed it on his servant, his secretary, uh, instead, and that's what. Well, that's how they framed it, right? And so the Cassidy case is a reference to that, but also think about in the sense of, you know, of uh, Vanier and Leslie Murdoch as well, mm, because mm -hmm. they make that look like a suicide and they cover true, that yeah. up as, as well. And Marlowe lets it look like a suicide as well. He does. Yeah, he does. He plays in that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So and I like that all, bit. Yeah. He's also, there's a little ambiguity to him in the story too, as he's shop soiled. He's not pure Galahad, I guess you could say. So that was Chandler putting, I think that um, particular reference to light in the story i think that mm -hmm. really drove him because when he has that conversation with one of the, the early detective writers before he gets in the black mask worked on that case and he gave chandler all the details on it so i think that was chandler just putting that in there you know just to bring more i guess verisimilitude to his story yeah yeah good for bringing that up well 
Uh, with that, it's uh, lighting the pipes episode all done. We're going to uh, duff our pipes, but only for a brief while. We'll procure copies of Lady in the Lake, and we'll be back yes. shortly with uh, with our next Marlowe adventure, which will be fun. Um, in the meantime, BFG, why don't we? Uh, why don't you just say a, a little thing about what you've been doing on on uh, Free the Greeks? Oh yes, I have a podcast. Um, it's just me, all by my lonesome. I am covering the Peloponnesian War. Um, for those who you not in the know, that is a 27-year-long conflict between the Greek city-states of Athens and Sparta. Uh, in a way, it's a thrilling historical narrative about different values that we could recognize today uh, going at each other for three decades mm -hmm. and how ruinous it was for both sides in the end. So check out your stuff there. Yeah, so please uh, check it out if you're into that. Yeah, absolutely. And you can also check out our stuff on Bond by Numbers, where um, we look through the James Bond world and uh, oh, all sorts of great stuff going on over at uh, Bond by Numbers. And we were joined on that show with the good pal of ours, Jeff Chapman, who yeah. uh, who is going to be with us for our Enola Holmes review. And yeah. uh, COVID-19 seems to be um, inspiring a lot of uh, <laughs> yeah. cre creativity in the podcast universe for us, that's for sure. And not just for for us across the board yeah the, across the, the board the frog pond that we all inhabit <laughs> yeah to, to, quote, to quote plato well i can't quote plato but i will uh, i will say i'll bid adieu without any platonic reference and wish <laughs> wish everybody the very best take care of yourselves everyone and thank you very much for tuning in to uh, lighten the pipes thanks josh it was good fun buddy yeah sayonara